Hello, and welcome to Where Am I To Go podcast. Today, before we start the show, I would like to bring up some business things that have kind of been on my mind so that you can know where to get more Where Am I To Go. First off, I'd like to talk about the Facebook page at Where Am I To Go podcast. It's on Facebook, and we've been posting some wonderful pictures of some of the places that we've been and some of the adventures that we've had. Not everything that we go and do is made into a podcast, and so we take pictures at different places and post those pictures so that you guys can enjoy some of the different places we've been. Also, I really am interested in listener feedback. I have an email address at where am I to go podcast at gmail.com. Again, that is where am I to go podcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear some of the listeners' comments and some of their ideas of places that might be interesting to visit and go and do. Today we are in Fort Bridger, Wyoming, which happens to be the home of Fort Bridger, which was on the Oregon Trail back when uh, the pioneers were coming across the, the plains. We are here with Josh, who is the man in charge of the museum, and we are going to have a real interesting podcast today. This place has is, is got so much history and so much to talk about. And Josh, why don't you get us started and just kind of give us a, a little bit of history as to why this place is called Fort Bridger, who Jim Bridger was, why it's here, and some of that kind of stuff. All right. So first and foremost, we actually have a lot longer history than most people realize here. Um, so to kind of give you some quick context of what we're going to be talking about today, we typically have five periods of occupation that we talk about here. Um, we like to call them our five M's because we found nice correlating names that begin with M for all of those five different occupation periods. So first of all, we have, of course, what we call our mountain man time period. Of course, this begins with Jim Bridger and his partner, Louis Vasquez, um, who established the original Fort Bridger. Now, the interesting thing about what they were doing, of course, is we know the fur trade was coming to an end at that point. Now, there was a, a prince in England who wore a silk hat to a party one day. And you'd think that wouldn't have much of an effect on the Western United States. Well, it did. Um, at that point, that was kind of the very end of the fur trade for beaver. Um, the price for beaver pelts suddenly dropped dramatically because everyone in Europe suddenly wanted a silk hat instead of the beaver felt hat that they'd been wearing for you know, the last 50 years or more. So, of course, that trade then comes to a sudden end. Um, beaver prices plummet, and all the mountain men who were out here making a living off of that, um, they had to find something else to do. Now, Jim Bridger and Louis Vasquez, they decided that they wanted to have um, a chance to stay up in these mountains. So they kind of looked around and saw the, that the very first two wagon trains heading west had made it all the way to the west coast and didn't have to ditch their wagons out for pack horses. Um, and they thought, westward movement's going to be the next big thing. We want to make sure we're ready for that. So they decided to come establish a fort here. Um, and of course, the interesting thing about that is the Oregon Trail, the California Trail, the Mormon Trail, all those westward movement trails had actually not been established yet. 
So they built the fort before the Terrell system. And of course, they built it here in this valley because they knew this was one of the best ways to get west. Um, in fact, I-80 still comes through this valley today because this is one of the best passes moving from east to west or, of course, west to east. So they built a fort here, and pretty soon, um, of course, they did that in 1843. And pretty soon after that, we have the Oregon Trail, the California Trail, um, the Mormon Trail. Of course, we also have the Pony Express Trail and the Overland Stagecoach Trail that actually pass right through our site here. Um, right through here. That we can walk on all of those trails on our site that we have today, as well as we actually have um, the first transcontinental highway, the Lincoln Highway, also runs across our park here, which really shows how much this was a part of American history as far as westward movement. Um, in fact, I like to tell most of our guests that coming and stopping by here, you join a long tradition of coming and then going, <laughs> which has been started in 1843, because that's what everyone's done. They've come, they've stopped, they've taken a break here at Fort Bridger, and then they've moved on. The Fort um, Bridger now has like 325 people in it, so it still is not a big metropolis. Well, according to the 2020... Um, census we're actually down to 181 and i can so people are still leaving yes yes and i can tell you that because i'm pretty sure i know every one of those 181 people that were in the census there so wow. we are a very small community here um, but we get a lot of traffic because we have such an important historic site here um, so again mountain man period was jim bridger and louis vasquez establishing the initial fort okay let's 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 stop with this a little bit Jim Bridger. Jim Bridger was like the premier mountain man. They say that, from my understanding, that Jim Bridger knew this country like the back of his hand. He knew every nook and cranny. In fact, where we're from, we've got a trail that Bridger made that went up through the Bighorn, uh, or, or the, yeah, the Bighorn Basin, uh, trying to get from uh, the gold fields on the other side of the mountain on up into Virginia City. Montana and so he, he had trails all over the place I find it interesting that he set this trail up absolutely or this this post up and again Jim Bridger as you mentioned he had just an unparalleled knowledge of the land and a big part of the reason that he chose this spot um, there are several reasons of course first of all that this was the pass that people needed to come through now of course there's a lot of places here in this valley that he could have set up um, and he actually did try two other posts that weren't quite to his liking before he settled on this one um, but big reason they came here was because the grass here grows all summer uh, in fact if you look out the window here you can still see we're pretty green this is actually the driest i've ever seen it here because we've had a bad year but typically we don't do any watering at all here because the groundwater is only five feet down the really? grass actually contains itself which means when wagon trains were coming across of course grass was a huge thing as far as fueling your animals um, and of course by the time you've got to here if you're headed on the california or the oregon trail you're about halfway and even if you are on the mormon trail just headed to salt lake you're almost there but you've just come through the worst of the trail and through the majority of wyoming is about the hardest the trail ever got so when you get to here this is an excellent place to take a break um, a lot of people don't realize this, but Jim Bridger actually did have an apprenticeship as a gunsmith in Missouri before he joined the fur trade. Oh, really? So he knew blacksmithing well enough that he was able to establish a blacksmith shop here in that original fort, um, as well as he had goods here. Um, 
And then, of course, you could stop and let your cattle and your horses just graze and kind of get some recovery. And a lot of times people would spend up to two weeks here um, breaking before they hit the trail hard again. So this was an excellent spot to stop, take a break, to do some recoup. Um, lots of water here, lots of grass here, or kind of a, a little bit of an oasis here along the trail that made a huge difference. Now, you, you mentioned the Oregon Trail and the Mormon Trail and the Pony Express, but wasn't this also part of like the California turnoff, breakoff point? And... From, now this is this is really digging into my archives in my brain, and and, and they're pretty sketchy as it is. But uh, it seems to me that I read a book on the Donner Party, and they had stopped here before they made the the fateful part of their trip, and they had been given some misinformation here at this uh, at this junction, and then took off and went down south, and that's kind of where the Mormon Trail followed was after the Donner Party had cleared the path. Is that, am, I, am I on with my history here? You're pretty close to on there. Um, the one thing that I can say is that particular uh, run with the Donner Party is still heavily debated by historians. Um, I've even had historians come in here and tell me, oh, well, Jim Bridger read the letter that was left for him, and then he knew that that would mean people wouldn't come to Fort Bridger anymore, so he lied about it. Of course, we know that's, more likely than not, not true, considering Jim Bridger was illiterate and could not read or write, so that makes it very difficult for him to read a letter that was left here. So even if he had that letter, chances are he probably had no idea what it said. Um, again, Jim Bridger was definitely trying to advocate, come this way, and um, so he definitely advertised for his fort and for this route. Um, but again, when it comes to actually purposefully misleading them, I don't think he had any malicious intent, as a lot of people accuse him of on misguiding the Donner Party. Well, he was following some writings from another, or, or the Donner Party was following some writings from another uh, author that had supposedly mapped out, I can't remember what his name was now, that had supposedly mapped out the other trail, and when they got into it, they ended up in timber that they were only making a mile a day. And it put them so far behind that uh, that's that's part of why they were going. Yeah. Well, they were be it was kind of a fateful trip the whole way. But Yeah, unfortunately for the Donner Party, uh, there were several, several factors that all added up to the inevitable end that they had that we all know that story. Um, very unfortunate. But you kind of mentioned earlier that this was a turnoff for the California Trail. Now, a lot of times we hear this, this idea of the parting of the ways for the Oregon and the California Trail, where they more or less traveled together to a certain point where they part ways, right, as the right. saying goes. Well, that's kind of a, a misidea that we have in our society today. There was actually several partings of the ways. Um, so there were several points of the trail where you could make a cutoff and start joining kind of the more Oregon northern route or keep heading along this route. Um, that, the interesting thing about our site here is we are just about at the last cutoff, say the final exit okay. on the highway to catch the Oregon Trail. So if you kept following this trail, um, you'd have one last chance just after Fort Bridger to turn north and catch the Oregon Trail. And if not, you were headed down to Salt Lake and from there straight on to California. So this was kind of the, the last parting of the ways is okay. really the significance of that. That's cool. And then you mentioned from the Oregon Trail, it went to the Lincoln Highway. 
Yep. Okay. So, and the Lincoln Highway is another highway, kind of like uh, Route 66 as far as infamy. It, it came from the East Coast, went all the way out to the West Coast, from what I understand. And, and uh, we have in Wyoming, just outside of Laramie, we have a great big statue of Lincoln sitting off the side of the interstate to mark the Lincoln Highway. I always wondered what that was there for, and then finally it dawned on me. Uh, but And that was all prior to the interstate system. Absolutely. And then when the interstate system came in, Interstate 80 overtook uh, the Lincoln Highway, which was what, Route 33? Is that what it was? Um, so first and foremost, it did go through several different names. Um, and the funny thing about the Lincoln Highway is, by today's idea of highways, it wouldn't have even close to qualified. Um, in fact, we know that several of the towns, specifically here in Wyoming, actually ended up having draft horse teams ready to go for when these cars got stuck in the inevitable mud puddles <laughs> that were sacked up. This dirt was, or this road was very, very rough road, um, and it was oftentimes affected greatly by the weather. It was just kind of a, a simple dirt track, so it was, it was really great. Um, great fun idea calling it an actual road especially if you're considering it by today's standards so we've got to take that idea of you know our nice asphalt well-paved roads um, even the gravel dirt roads we find on our, ourselves on a lot of times here in Wyoming are far far superior to what the actual Lincoln Highway was coming through Wyoming. And did the Lincoln Highway stay that way or did they finally pave the whole thing? Um, it kind of had several different stages of progression on that one where you know as I said it started out as just and honestly, there was a lot of the Oregon Trail that was probably just as fit for a car as this Lincoln Highway was. Wow. It was really rough. So it kind of started there, and it slowly, you know, as it got used more and people started to understand, oh, this actually is an important thing, it started to get more maintenance, more care, um, and it was further developed. And, of course, um, actually I-80 still runs over several patches, so a lot of people consider I-80 to be kind of the successor of the Lincoln Highway, at least through the Wyoming part of that okay so. and and yeah the, the interstate system was brought in under eisenhower wasn't it in 1956 or something i believe that's correct you, you'd have to check that elsewhere on that one that's well, out of my particular somebody's going to have to check it <laughs> yeah. i'm just going to throw out a number and pretend like i know what i'm talking about <laughs> yeah that one's out of my expertise so i can't give you a good answer on that one okay and so on this on this uh grounds on these facilities uh, tell us a little bit about what we're going to see today. All right, so I kind of mentioned our five periods of occupation. We've, we've talked briefly about the mountain man occupation. Now, of course, one of those groups coming out here and the next group to occupy this territory was the Mormon pioneers. Now, an interesting thing about the Mormon pioneers, as Brigham Young, who came out with the vanguard of that particular immigration group, um, he was headed to Salt Lake, and he was he headed there based off of a lot of uh, hearsay of what was there. He didn't really know what he was looking for, but he had a, a faith that there was something there and that he could essentially keep his people safe there. Well, he was so set on that being the answer that when he got here to Fort Bridger, um, he saw the value of what this fort would be for his people coming across to make it to Salt Lake. He actually offered to buy the fort from Fort or from Jim Bridger before he'd even made it to his final destination of Salt Lake because he was wow. so convinced that this was where his people needed to be and this was going to be just such an opportunity to help his people get there. Of course Jim Bridger was making quite a bit of money and told him a pretty solid no, um, but 
Brigham Young, if you know anything about his history, was a rather persistent fellow, um, and he kept asking, kept getting told no, and no, and no, until eventually he said, let me think about it. Um, and we kind of enter a really foggy point of history at this point. Um, one of the biggest controversies that happens, and we still have people on one side or the other that come through Fort Bridger, and there's a pretty passionate debate that goes on between this one. Um, and the question that we are left with today is, um, we do know the Mormons obtained the fort, but we don't know how they obtained it. Again, the historical record is very unclear on what exactly happened. What we do know is that this was actually established originally as part of the Utah Territory. Oh, really? Now, that meant that Jim Bridger found himself living under U.S. law for the first time in his life since he was 15 years old. Wow. Um, and as you can imagine, Jim Bridger, a bit of a free spirit, um, he did not do well with that. Um, in fact, one of the U.S. laws at the time was illegal to sell alcohol or ammunition to Native Americans. Um, those were two very productive products that he was selling out of his fort. So Jim Bridger kind of did what he'd always done with authority, and he ignored it. Um, so he kept selling alcohol and ammunition to the Native Americans here. Of course, at the time, because this was part of the Utah Territory and the Mormons, they'd, they'd really well established Salt Lake at this point. Um, and they were just starting to send parties out to inhabit other parts of the Utah Territory. Well, this valley, of course, had a group of Mormon pioneers who were sent out here to settle this. And, of course, they, unlike Bridger, um, they didn't like the idea of the Native Americans having ammunition. And they didn't like the idea of getting shot at. Um, which They also didn't like the idea of alcohol. Yeah, they, they weren't necessarily a fan of that either. So they uh, started making complaints um, to the government, which at the time... Brigham Young was the governor of the Utah Territory. Um, so, of course, we do also know that Brigham Young did not get along well with Jim Bridger. They had very, very different views of the world and how the world should work. And because of that, they really didn't like each other. So, there were a few other things going in. Um, there was actually another group of mountain men who'd established a ferry system up here. And they were making good money um, ferrying immigrants across these rivers that were here. And, of course, being part of the Utah Territory, they were supposed to be paying taxes on that. Well, they never got to that. So Brigham Young actually sent a posse of 150 armed men up here to this valley to arrest Jim Bridger, bring him back to Salt Lake for trial, but also to go talk to these other mountain men and collect the taxes that were due that they were evading. So they did have multiple purposes in coming up here. But, of course, when Bridger and, for that matter, the other mountain men saw this, group of 150 armed men coming their way. Well, this wasn't their first scuffle. They knew what to do. They ran. Um, in fact, if you follow Jim Bridger's story, he ran to the southeast of here somewhere a little bit until he found a tree that had a big eagle's nest in it. He climbed up the tree and he hid out in the eagle's nest for a few days while this Mormon posse was looking for him. And they never were able to find him. But he stayed up there while uh, his Shoshone wife smuggled out enough food and supplies his $20 worth of gold, and a few horses for him. They got those horses out to him, and as soon as he got those horses and all those supplies ready, he took off and he started riding for Washington, D.C., because he was going to go tell and plead his case that the Mormons had stolen the fort from him. So, of course, that's kind of the, the Jim Bridger side of the story. Now, interestingly enough, if you go down to Salt Lake, you can still go to the archives and pull up two written receipts for the purchase of Fort Bridger, um, two receipts, $4,000 each for a total of $8,000. And of course, 
they have the signature of Louis Vasquez and Jim Bridger. Now they have been authenticated by several different sources as best as you can. As I mentioned earlier, Jim Bridger was illiterate. Um, so we do know that in his dealings, typically he would have his partner sign for him and he would put his traditional X by his signature, which is a really, really hard thing to validate. I would imagine X's but, look a lot alike. Yeah, yeah. So that's a difficult one. But one thing we do know is that those signatures are the Louis Vasquez signature for himself and the Louis Vasquez signature for Jim Bridger. So again, we have this this story that again we have so many people come out here and they say, oh well, the Mormons stole the fort from Jim Bridger, and we've actually had um, some Mormons come up here and say, hey, the church bought this, and then the military stole it from later on. We the church should still own this property. And, as I said, it's a pretty heated debate um, as whether this fort was stolen from Jim Bridger or whether it was purchased from him. And again, we don't have any evidence because we just don't have the historical records we need to clarify this, but based on the circumstantial evidence as I see it, we actually have this funny situation where I think Jim Bridger was probably robbed and I think the church probably paid for the fort. I think Vasquez the missing character was... is Vasquez, which, to give him some credit, um, when they when Jim Bridger and Vasquez made the original deal um, to set the fort up here, of course, Vasquez had some experience as a shopkeeper before he came out to do the mountain man thing. So the deal was that he was going to run the shop, and Jim Bridger was going to make sure they were well supplied. Well, first and foremost, you should know that they never wintered here. Um, this is a miserable place to spend a winter on January day. We get up to negative 30 by 2 in the afternoon. We consider that a pretty warm day. That's pretty good for us. Um, pretty still a really treacherous part of, yeah. of I-80. I mean, yeah, this has closed down we a whole lot of... down a lot through the winter because it is such a dangerous area. And of course, they knew that. They weren't planning on staying here. So they would set up shop during the summer at their fort. They would sell goods to the immigrants. As soon as the last immigrant train passed, they would head down south. And, um, as best we can tell, they stayed at a fort that was near Taos, New Mexico. Okay. Um, and they wintered there. And of course, what ended up happening in reality, despite what the deal was supposed to be, is they would supply in Taos, New Mexico. They would bring those supplies up to Fort Bridger. And turns out that was the only supply run they needed to make for the season. So Jim Bridger more or less found himself with nothing to do, which fitted Jim Bridger's personality extremely well. Um, so he, we do know that he did some... Um, some flagging, kind of poked a little bit of fun at Jim Bridger. He was kind of like, you know, the pizza guy on the street corner that you see waving the banner. He'd ride up the trail a few days um, and talk to people and say, hey, you're almost to Fort Bridger. Just keep going this way. You'll get there. There's supplies. There's water. There's lots of grass. You'll have a good place to recover. And he was kind of the guy waving the banner for a while. Well, he didn't stick with that very long. Um, again, Jim Bridger was a very independent fellow and very much an adventurer. So pretty soon he uh, actually was adventuring most of the time. In fact, we do know that there was a red flag that they would fly at the fort for the time when Jim Bridger was actually there. Oh, really? Um, and it did not fly very often. So, for the most part, Jim Bridger didn't actually stay at his own fort very often. Again, they kind of called it Jim or Fort Bridger because had they called it Fort Vasquez, no one would have known who that was. But as you mentioned, Jim Bridger was already a legend. So everyone hears the name Fort Bridger and they go, oh, that's Jim Bridger. Of course we need to go there. That guy's a hero. He knows everything about this place. So really what it ended up being was kind of Vasquez running the shop and doing all the work. 
using the name of Jim Bridger, but really Bridger wasn't there for much of it. So okay. to, to Louis' credit, um, and again, this is all unprovable, so it may even be a wrong theory, but I do feel that Vasquez was probably feeling pretty entitled to the fort because um, he had done all the work there. So after Jim Bridger got run off, it would not surprise me to hear that Vasquez went ahead with the, the deals that had already kind of started and went ahead and thought, yeah, $8,000 is a great price for that. I'll take it. So he signed for, of course, himself and Jim Bridger. Of course, it's not hard to forge the X there at the right, side. Right, right. Um, and so I think he did sell that fort to the Mormon church and just never gave Jim his portion. Um, of course, we do know that if we follow Vasquez's history after that, he did open up shop in Salt Lake City for about three years, um, during which time he made enough of a fortune that he was able to very handsomely retire. Um, so, circumstantial He maybe evidence. had some money to get that started. Yeah. Yeah, so my personal thought is, is that a lot of this debate is actually just missing that potential key factor of Louis Vasquez. Now, of course, that being said, that, that is a jump on my part, so certainly right. don't take that as absolute history because we simply don't have the historical records to back that up. Sounds like speculations um, all over the history of this place. Oh, absolutely. From, from said, the different was, conflicts you've mentioned already. That was a very, very sparsely recorded part of history. So, But by one way or another, the Mormons did obtain the fort, um, whether it was by theft or purchase, we probably never will know. But we do know that when they got here, um, again, they had a pretty rocky relationship with the U.S. government. Um, and they knew that. And they actually started to prepare pretty early for something called the Utah War, which I think is unfortunately never mentioned in most U.S. history classes. Never heard of it myself. Let's, so let's, let's delve into this. That sounds about right. Um, I like to consider the, the Utah War kind of the Cuban Missile Crisis of the 1800s. Um, of course, if we look at the Cuban Missile Crisis, we had a moment in history where something could have happened and it would have changed everything. Right. But it didn't. And because of that, we just kind of had a really tense moment and then back to normal. And that's kind of what happened with the Utah War. Now, of course, the Mormons, they originally moved out here in large part because in Missouri, where they were living, there was actually an extermination order ordered against them. So it was perfectly legal in the state of Missouri to kill a Mormon for being a Mormon. Um, of course, under the situation, I myself would have moved out. Um, you know, that's pretty harsh living. Right, conditions. right. Um, and they actually had pleaded to the federal government um, after the state had made that mandate to try and get that repealed. And the federal government kind of just looked the other way and, oh, look at that sky. What a beautiful blue and just kind of ignored them. So the Mormons did not have great faith in the U.S. government. Um, back when they moved out here, their original idea was to make their own nation. They wanted to have the nation of Deseret. Um, of course, about halfway through their move, the Spanish-American War ended, and with the end of that war, the new treaties established this as actual U.S. territory. Of course, the U.S. was never going to relinquish that. So right. the Mormons kind of decided, oh, well, if we can't have our own country, at least statehood is a good second option. So they started processing that, and of course, they became the Utah Territory, as we mentioned earlier. Um, now, the funny thing about a territory is that the president picks the officials. They are not elected. And that's an important thing to remember in this particular conflict because, again, the Mormons did not have great faith in the U.S. government. But President Buchanan at the time, he realized that and he kind of thought, oh, well, I'll try and make some amends 
And that's why we have Brigham Young, the Mormon leader, becoming the first governor of the Utah Territory, because he was kind of trying to bridge that gap. Um, but he didn't really try too hard. Most of the other officials he sent were his hand-selected officials. Um, and of course, as they got out here, these men didn't want to be here. Um, Utah Territory was way out in the middle of nowhere. It's in the high desert. It's hard living. It was with a culture that they didn't agree with or necessarily like. Um, but of course, it was a an opportunity given to them by the president. Right. If you turn that down, you're committing career suicide. So most of these officials came out very begrudgingly. They didn't want to be here. They had horrible expectations. Um, they expected nothing good to happen. Of course, the Mormons, seeing these U.S. officials coming out to lead them, were also very much under the opinion that this was a bad thing. So you've already got bad opinions on both sides. Can you imagine what happened when they got here? It was already predetermined that it was not going to be good. <laughs> it got worse. Yep, it got worse. Um, and one of my favorite stories to tell is, uh, and this kind of exemplifies the very worst of this relationship. So most of it wasn't like this, but this one is a fun story. Um, in Fillmore, Utah, which at the time was the capital of the Utah Territory, the judge who was sent there brought a woman with him who was not his wife. So, of course, especially with someone who was a religious and pious as the Mormons, that was a bad deal. But it got worse. Um, this particular judge was known to also have said woman sitting on his lap during a lot of the trials and the court hearings. Really? That he was involved with. He that seems inappropriate oh, even today. Completely inappropriate. <laughs> um, and of course, he wasn't paying much attention to those hearings or proceedings. So the Mormon people, especially in Fillmore, were deeply offended by this. Um, and again, that kind of shows the very worst of the relationships between the, the U.S. government officials and the Mormons. But more or less, we, we kind of see that story of the, mil or the U.S. officials get out here and things get worse. Um, of course, as things get worse, the two parties dislike each other more and more. Stories start to get a little over-exaggerated, inflated. Again, it's a, a long ways to Washington, D.C. So by the time these messages were getting back to um, President Buchanan, what was happening, he was essentially hearing, hey, the Mormons are out here in a state of rebellion. They're raising the army and getting ready to take over the United States. Of course, Buchanan's sitting there thinking, oh, man, what do I do with this mess? And as he's pondering this, suddenly we have one Jim Bridger come riding into Washington, D.C. and says, hey, a Mormon army just stormed and took over my fort. There it is. Utah War starts, and a lot of people, again, I'm amazed at how many U.S. history classes miss this particular moment of history, because Buchanan mobilized one-third of the U.S. military. Are you serious? To come out here and deal with the Mormon problem. Um, and a huge show of force on Buchanan's part. And, of course, if we look at the history of this, we are right at a moment in history. This is going to be um, 50 or 1856 when they are sent. Um, they we're dealing. Have... We're dealing right at the Civil War. Yeah. So I, I can't help. Again, this is me speculating some. So forgive me for this, but I can't help but think this, those Southern supporters were probably watching as one third of the Union Army left the United States. Oh yeah. Um, I'm sure they kind of just sat back and said, you know what? Let's let's watch this and see how this goes. Because at least from the histories I've seen. Everyone knew the Civil War was going to be a thing. It was just a question of when. It was no longer if. Right. And then we have one-third of the Union leaving. I'm sure there was some, oh, some thoughts going on there. Oh, I'll bet. Yeah. So, of course... Um, wow. That, that's, a, that's a lot of people. That is. It was a huge show of force. So, of course, 
Um, typically, that's called Johnson's Army, if you've ever heard of Sidney Johnson. Of course, he later became a, a Confederate officer. Okay. Um, died I Shiloh. haven't heard of him, but... Um, but yeah, he actually got his start because he was put in charge of this particular band coming out. So again, the name Johnson's Army is kind of what stuck to it. So Johnson's Army started coming out here, and as they got out here, um, the Mormons, of course, at this fort, this was kind of the easternmost station for them. So Fort Bridger, they actually built a really rapidly built cobblestone wall around Jim Bridger's original wood stockade walls, trying to fortify and prepare for this conflict. Um, and again, their bad communication, the Mormons, of course, had been hearing false assumptions as well. So the U.S. Army was coming out to put down the, the Mormon rebellion that was going to invade the United States, which, of course, was a complete falsehood that didn't exist. Well, at the same time, the Mormons heard this army unit was coming out to kill every man, woman, and child, which, of course, was also false. But that's what the two sides heard. So, of course, you've got these two sides that have these false ideas, and it got really intense. We didn't even um, have Facebook then in order no. to give us the truth. And yeah. have the truth detectors yeah. so, and censor people. So, yeah, so Dang. you can imagine how... Oh, this must have been horrible. It was, yeah, absolutely <laughs> horrible. So, of course, um, as... Sorry. As Johnson's army was coming out here, they uh, they sent out a few scouting parties to go kind of harass the caravan and try and slow them down. And of course, as those scouting parties came back, they came back to Fort Bridger and kind of said, hey, you should see the artillery these guys are bringing. Um, and everyone there at Fort Bridger knew exactly what would happen if the military got to Fort Bridger. They would have surrounded the fort, opened up an artillery barrage, and they would have just slaughtered everyone there. It wouldn't have even been a fight. Those walls would have worked great against rifle fire, eh, not so much against cannon fire. Right. Um, and they knew that, so the Mormons who were stationed here took the next best military action they could. They decided to burn the fort to the ground. Oh. So they packed up everything of value they could. We do know they actually buried some things and had horses trample over it, everything they couldn't take that was of value, because again, the idea at this point was to make sure the military had nothing to go on. They then after burning the fort, burnt all the grass, all the trees, everything they could from here to Green River. Really? In an attempt to slow down the military. And how far is Green River from here? 50 miles? About that, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that was a huge, huge area to burn. Wow. And, of course, that worked extremely well. Um, again, the military was largely pushed by oxen and mules and horses. They don't do so well if they don't have grass to feed on. Right. Um, so, by the time Johnson's army finally made it to Fort Bridger, they found... Nothing except for the remains of the old Mormon wall, as it's now called, um, as well as the early Wyoming snow. They got caught in that winter storm, and they got bogged down. So they actually moved about three miles south of where we are right now, and they established Camp Scott, where they spent a miserable winter trying just to survive. Um, of course, if you read any of Johnson's articles on, or thoughts on the, the march, he was a typical officer of the day. He wanted to March down into Salt Lake, um, storm Salt Lake Valley, sword drawn, guns blazing, take action, ask questions later. So, of course, this could have erupted into a full war. Um, but again, who knows? The Confederates may have chosen to kickstart the war, war early, is my personal thought. Right, I have heard right. other opinions that say that they would have actually delayed the Civil War because the Confederates would have kind of joined up and stayed with the Union long enough to kick the Mormons' butts and then figured out their own things afterwards. So we, we honestly don't know what would have happened, but surely something 
would have been vastly different in our history had that war broke out. Now, as they were wintering here, um, Johnston, he had some talks with some subordinate officers, and he was eventually persuaded to send envoys down to Salt Lake. And this is what I personally think is the very coolest part of this entire story. And this is the part we should be teaching in our U.S. history classes. These envoys went down to Salt Lake, and we have this rare, beautiful moment in human history where people talked. Okay. They talked. They realized, oh, we, we've had some misunderstandings here. They found out the Mormons weren't raising an army. They weren't in a state of rebellion. And the military realized, we, we really don't have a reason for us to fight. The Mormons, of course, realized, oh, the military's not here to kill us all. We don't have a reason to fight either. So they decided not to. That was a good decision. So that, I think, is more or less why the Mormon War, the Utah War, was is more or less passed by on all the U.S. history classes because it turned out not to be much of anything other than a big, long march um, for the military. Now, that being said, I think there's a vastly important lesson there to be learned. And how much better of a world would we be in had people just taken some time to talk? Granted, we'd still have fights, but... You know, the problem is, is as I see it and I've always seen it, is the poor soldier gets sucked into a rich man's war. You know, the president of, of uh, the Soviet Union and the president of the United States can't get along, but those two don't go put on boxing gloves and take it out on each other. They send all of their subjects, so to speak, and they're the ones that have to pay the price. Yeah. You know, and, and like you said, if, if people could just realize that, well, I, you, you've heard the story where Christmas time, the Nazis and the Americans got out and out played. Trenches and played they got out and played, you know, and, yeah. and the next day they were back shooting at each other. What, what's with that? If you're out yeah. playing on one day and thinking the guys are all right, why do you got to go shoot them the next day? Exactly. But it's, it's really a strange thing in the human psyche. It really is. And, and this is one of those conflicts that, again, shows just what the human race is capable of. If they do communicate, they resolve the conflict. I mean, very, very intense conflict. And just to give you a good idea of how intense it got, um, the next spring, when Johnson's army, after resolving this issues for the most part, they... Uh, they did go still march into Salt Lake. Um, the Mormons had given them one street that they were supposed to stay on to go up, establish a new governor, establish, a, essentially make sure the government wasn't in a state of rebellion. And it was more just kind of a, a show to finalize the treaty. But the Mormons were still so worried about this that they'd actually built straw piles in every doorstep in the city of Salt Lake. The people had actually completely abandoned Salt Lake leaving only a few young men with torches and horses. And the word wow. was that if the military buried and left that road, they were to burn the entire city to the ground. So it was still a very intense situation, but the military stuck to that road. Nobody had to burn anything down. And it was really, I mean, it's okay to have an intense situation to be ready. But still, conflict was for the most part avoided in this war because people were able to communicate. So I think that's the big takeaway of the Utah War anyways. And of course, Fort Bridger has such a huge portion of that story to tell. Um, now, of course, kind of moving on, um, the next well, talk- I, I need to tell oh, you, go ahead. thank you very much for that history lesson. That's something I have heard nothing about. 
And I like education. Yeah, it's, I've just been educated. It's a good piece. <laughs> okay, now let's so move course, on. Most of the buildings that you see on Fort Bridger today have to do with after the Mormon War for you know obvious fire-related reasons. Right, right. Um, and the buildings, in fact, we built by insurance, today. right? Oh, oh, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If, if you count insurance, the uh, military conquest. So again, one way or another, the Mormons had obtained this spot, but after the Utah War. The U.S. military realized, you know, we probably had to have some kind of show of authority out this far west. Um, they also wanted to protect the trail systems, which, as I mentioned, run directly through our property here. So they established this as an official military fort. Um, so we have, of course, our third occupation being the military occupation. And they stayed here um, and more or less guarded the fort, um, guarded the trails. They mustered troops out for the Utah or not for the Utah War, for the Indian Wars that happened after that. And interestingly enough, we really didn't have any battles that were fought here. Um, and one of the things that people notice when they come to Fort Bridger is, and we get asked this question all the time, where are your walls? It's a fort, right? It's supposed to have walls. Well, at its largest, Fort Bridger as a military reserve was actually 500 square miles. Um, and they had no intention on competing with China for the greatest wall, so they just didn't build a wall. <laughs> Um, Fort Bridger was 500 square miles. Absolutely. So it was a, a huge area that had been taken. Now, was it like Fort Laramie where they wrote a lot of treaties and had a lot of Indian gatherings and that type of stuff also? Absolutely. In fact, um, the treaties for the Shoshone, the Eastern Shoshone who live on the Wind Reservation, as well as uh, the Shoshone Bannock who live at the Fort Hall Reservation, signed those treaties here on this property. Um, and it's something we still get to have kind of a fun time with every July 3rd. We actually have a treaty day where we have representatives from both those tribes come and we do ceremonies and kind of honor that that treaty signing that happened here. Really? So, and then just last week you had your annual rendezvous also. Oh, absolutely. That one's a by far our biggest event. Now, was there actual rendezvous take place here at Fort Bridger or is this just something that you guys do so we do know there were lots of rendezvous that took place around this area, but as far as specifically here at Fort Bridger, no, no rendezvous. Because that was after the here. Mountain Man era mm -hmm. that, that Bridger establishes. Absolutely. But because we have that tie to Bridger and because people love the Mountain Man area, it has become a tradition here. In fact, it's about to hit its 50th year wow. of annual rendezvous, which is going to be kind of a fun thing for us because, again, if we look at historical um, legality of it, that means anything 50 years old or older is considered a historic piece. Okay. So we are about to have a historic reenactment of a historic reenactment, which is kind of a fun thing to say because there's yeah. not a ton of people who can make that claim. But that's part of what, you know, this rendezvous has been going on a long time and it has tremendous effect here. I was so. here one year. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is an awful fun event. And so do the actual grounds end up with uh, teepees and mountain man oh, camps? And yeah. so Absolutely. It's, so, yeah, okay. our entire fort grounds, um, other than our specifically designated archaeological sites where the foundations of older buildings were, they're okay. no longer standing. We, we log those off so those areas are kept safe because, again, we are also a continuously dug archaeological site. Um, we want to protect more than anything the history and the cultural um, resources that are here. Those are course irreplaceable if they are damaged there's it's just a loss there's nothing we can do to restore those so we keep those well protected but anywhere where it's not 
going to harm. We do a lot of camping and it fills How many up people do you capacity. have here? Um, so our last actual numbers, because we haven't gotten the numbers in for this year, um, and of course 2020 cool. due to COVID, we had to cancel it. Um, but if we go back to 2019, we put about 32,000 people through our site in four Are days. Are you serious? So it is a huge event. Um, you better open up that other 500 square miles. Yeah, we just about <laughs> need to. In fact, some of the neighboring farmers, they, uh, they've they got it in their schedule. They cut their hay right before rendezvous. They bring out porta-potties, and they actually have camping on some of the fields next to us, and they get to make some extra money off of their fields like that. Um, so it is kind of a huge event. Uh, so do you have any of the old photographs of, of like when they were doing the treaty signings and you had the Indian tribes all teepeed out around in the outlying areas and some of that? We do. Um, in our collections, of course, we've got um, actually a pretty incredible collection of both blueprints, photos. Um, the military was pretty good at keeping records, and we do have access to a lot of those records still. So, Cool. And how many buildings do you have on site here? So here at our site, we manage about 37 acres, and we have about 39 structures that we have to manage. And how many of those are original to after the fire? So um, we actually only have three replicas on our site. Everything okay. else is an authentic building. So, of course, we have a, the one that everyone for sure sees, even if they just drive into our parking lot and turn around and go home. Um, for the, the black and orange cabins, which were built in the 1920s to help accommodate the, the newfangled tourists coming down Lincoln Highway. Um, and the and the fee there for spending the night looked, looked terrible bad. Yeah. It was a whole dollar. Yeah, and of course, a big part of that is because uh, and that shop, that office building there is, is one that we replicated. The rest of the cabins were still there, and we restored those. And looking at the photos of how it used to be versus that, it looked goofy. Um, so we built the office there to kind of give it that full look. Um, and of course, some of the fun things that were happening there is that uh, you have some covered parking, which is some of the first covered parking in the area for automobiles. Really? Um, of course, you've also got one of the very first light plants in the area. So if you were staying there, you had two hours of electric lighting each night. Really? There. So it was, it was a pretty happening place. Yeah, um, no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> and that was 1930? Yeah, and of course that actually helped a lot with uh, what happened with our museum because we actually entered our museum occupation, which is kind of our final occupation, um, in 1933 is when we opened officially to the public. Now, okay. the fun thing about that is that because we were so early on, we had a lot of uh, a lot of accommodations that most museums just simply don't have. Um, we are quite the special site. In fact, we were Wyoming's very first historic site. Really? Um, Yes, because the building we're in right now is actually um, the Post Traders store, which, as I kind of started to mention earlier before we started, um, was owned by William Carter. Now, William Carter came out as the Post Trader during the Mormon War. So he was here from basically the very beginning of the military occupation. Um, and he actually stayed here with his family. In fact, his family were the ones who donated the land to the Washington, or to the state of Wyoming for it to become Wyoming's first historic site. Wow. And because we have that direct tie to the family who lived here through the 1800s, 
a lot of the things you see in here are original to that family and were originally in this store. Um, in fact, one of my very favorites, um, I'll apologize to the audience because they can't see this, but right, well, well, no, this is this is this is my life yeah. because the museums uh, <laughs> is is kind of hard to go through. But uh, we are standing in what what looks like an old time mercantile. It's got several counters, uh, some glass cases, lots of glass cases actually, and we have uh, a hat display. We've got a, a what what do they call those? Uh, not fringes, but uh, lace. Lace uh, women's wear things. There's a coffee grinder. There's a, a hip bath. There's some saddles in here. There's just it's just got a lot of things. Some canned goods, and so it's just a basic. Uh, general store type atmosphere in here and what is it you're going to show us so one of my favorite pieces in here is this ham that is hanging now this ham is a real ham it has been salted and smoked um, to preserve it and of course the funny thing about this particular ham that especially i love to tell kids because they always give me a good face for this one we actually don't know how old this one is Really? If I follow my very oldest curation records to the origins as best we can find of this artifact, is in 1929 when the Carter family donated this to the state of Wyoming, this was already hanging here. Are you serious? So we, we're almost to the point where we can say with certainty that this ham is, you know, triple digits as far as age, but... Um, is it petrified? <laughs> it actually I mean, is that's, that's kind of the next point, isn't um, it? In fact, if you kind of... Let you poke it. We generally don't allow that, but you can feel it's still got some good texture. It to does. It. Um, and theoretically, if you were to put this in some boiling water, you should be able to get some moisture back in it, and it should be edible. Um, of course, I'd probably cry if you ate my ham because it's such a fun story to tell. Right. But what an incredible piece to have. And again, that's the kind of thing that happened from having that direct tie to the owners of this spot. Because um, when the family donated it, they wanted this stuff to be in the museum. This wasn't something that was kind of uh, donated to us. Again, they did get a very good tax write-off for it. Right. But um, a lot of this stuff is original. And that's the kind of thing that you just don't see in other museums that we have a plethora of. Um, in fact, some of these machines you see back here, this cheese cutter, these two butter churns, this one in particular is actually used as an ice cream maker as well, were owned by the Carter family. This is wow. something they actually had here. I want to go back to this ham real quick. Though. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> this, I love the ham. This ham that we're looking at is is probably a front leg of a, of a hog, it looks like. And it actually looks very similar to what you might see in the grocery store. And I felt that the texture, it's, it's moist. And I've always wondered, you know, like when you read the old stories about uh, the pioneers coming across, they'd take 50 pounds of salted pork. And I always wondered how it is that it didn't spoil. I mean, I know the salt preserves to a degree, but this doesn't seem to have any salt on it. It must have been smoked and dried out to some degree. It feels like there's still moisture in it, but this is a very well-preserved piece of meat that Looks like you actually could take out a knife, slice a piece off, and eat it, and be okay to cruise on down yeah. the road. Well, so theoretically, you should be able to do that. Um, but the idea behind it is that this also does take some skill. Um, you really have to know what you're doing to preserve a ham this way. This is something that you know not just anyone could do. You would have to know exactly how to do this to get this kind of level. Um, again, I've tried curing some meats in a similar manner. 
mine haven't lasted near as long because I don't have the skill to do quite what they did here. So. Right. But I've always so wanted, you know, it's always been a question in my mind. How is it that you take a slab of meat and put it in the back of a wagon, drive it all the way across the Oregon Trail, and still, and still be able to eat on it without getting botulism? I mean, nowadays, if it's in the refrigerator for four days, you're supposed to feed it to the dogs. Right. You know, because, yeah. yeah. And, and these guys were, were taking it on a six-month trip in 100-degree weather. Absolutely. And just as this hand shows, it can be done. Um, again, we've stepped away from a culture that does that because, honestly, I think it does take a lot of work. Oh, I'm sure to it does. To get to a point where you can do that. But when you're talking survival in the 1800s... They didn't, didn't have, have the, the preservation. Yeah. You didn't have any other preservation methods. This was how it had to be done. And, of course, if you're going to make that journey, you need that food. There is no other option other than to find a way. But they must have been able to do this on the trail and everything else because, I mean, they were shooting venison. They were killing buffalo and, and preserving that for different parts of their trip Absolutely. also. Absolutely. And, of course, you'd, you'd want to eat as much as you could while you were moving. But there's also something called pemmican. Right, right. Of course. Let's, let's talk that. about pemmican um, for those that don't know. So pemmican, of course, is kind of a, a mixture of berries and around here at least it was often used with pine nuts um, and then of course your meat that was kind of ground up and then mixed with fat. I was going to say a lot of fat. A lot of fat and that really adds a lot of preservation. What it does is it gives you a really nutritious um, basically I like to call it a granola bar even though it is more meat than and fat than it is anything. Right. But essentially it's something you can pull out of your pocket, you can munch on. Now of course there were several Native American tribes who've been using that for their nomadic lifestyle for thousands of years and of course that was something that as people were crossing the plains they were not going to miss out on that they saw the nutritional value there they picked that up and that was another thing that sustained a lot of these people moving west um, that's interesting because so, i've heard yeah. about the indians using it but i didn't know it was such a staple of of the western expansion absolutely in fact the mountain men of course jumped well, on that one as soon as they could because they had a lot better relations with the, the Native Americans. Well, not only that, they had to watch what they were doing because that's that's where they lived. Yeah. So, of course, they kind of passed that on to the uh, immigrants who were coming out. So that was something they could teach people. Again, a lot of things we don't realize about these immigrants are that go to overlooked a lot are that most people don't realize these immigrants, most of them are buying a gun for the first time in their lives to make this trip and had no idea how to even shoot the thing. But they knew they needed a rifle. So right. They purchased one. They purchased gunpowder. Doesn't mean they know how to use it or do anything with it. And certainly doesn't mean they can hit anything if they do get a shot off. Or even um, be safe. Yeah. So a lot of uh, funny things that really the westward movement, um, the biggest thing I can say for it was it was a fast learning curve. Oh, yeah. And if you didn't, you unfortunately died. And we do know that several, several thousand people died. Right. Oh, yeah. System. Yep. No, and the mountain men were, were really quick to try and incorporate themselves into the Indian tribes, you know, take themselves an Absolutely. Indian wife or or something in order to be able to blend into there because that's where they had to winter and, and In fact, survive. most of the mountain men, one of the best compliments you could give them would be if you mistook them for an Indian brave. Right. They, that was what they lived for. So a lot of those guys were absolutely trying to adopt that culture, and it was a source of pride for them. Um, considering on how native you seemed. So that was something, that, especially amongst the mountain, and of course it was frowned upon by 
most of the, the immigrants coming across the trail, but for the mountain men themselves, that was a great source of pride, and that was something you sought after. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and go take a look at some of your other buildings and, and keep talking. Uh, we are, the weather here today is extremely windy, so we're kind of moving from building to building. Uh, bear with us if it gets a little bit breezy. Actually, it's going to get breezy. I'm going to cut here and uh, take, a, take a break, and then we'll pick it up at another building. Okay, so now we're, we're going through the different buildings of the museum. We stepped inside of another building. We just got to looking at some uh, different areas that Mr. Carter had put together. Uh, go ahead and tell us a little bit about Mr. Carter and what his role was here at uh, Fort Bridger. So, of course, Mr. Carter came out as the post trader, um, earlier known as the sutler. Um, so, of course, that meant that he was essentially still in a civilian position, but he had the full monopoly to provide non-commissioned goods to the military. Um, of course, that was a pretty good spot to be in for a 500-square-mile fort. Oh, um, yeah. So, of course, that wasn't a total monopoly because, again, you could only sell goods at the prices the federal government said you could. Um, so you did have to be somewhat clever in how you made sure you got that done because, again, we do have plenty of examples from other forts of guys coming in and losing money from being the Because, um, again, you buy things at one price and you can only sell them, and sometimes you end up selling them for less than you bought them for. Well, the um, transportation costs here had to have been phenomenal. Absolutely. So, of course, Mr. Carter proved himself a very well-adept post-trader, um, as well as... Um, shouldn't anyway. As well as a uh, just a very clever guy in general. He was very much built on uh, the idea of building a, essentially a financial empire out here, um, something that he very much succeeded in. He became Wyoming's very first millionaire, um, a status he achieved, if I remember correctly, in the 1880s. Wow. Um, which is fairly impressive. Of course, he did that based on his store that he was selling to both military Again, right along the immigrant trail, so he was selling to them as well. He had four lumber mills up the canyon that he, of course, was making good money on. And then he had a cattle industry that stretched over four of our current states. Really? Um, so he had quite the industry going, and it, it showed. Um, and again, as we mentioned in the Carter compound, he had quite the setup there. Um, all of that is his personally owned things. Um, a milk house a wash house, just these luxury buildings that no one else this far west had. Now you were saying the wash house was just for washing clothes. It wasn't Absolutely. for washing people. The, the only people that went in there were the servants that he had, and they went in just to do the Carter family laundry. He also had the very first school. Yep, very first schoolhouse, technically in both Utah and Wyoming, since we were at one point or another part of both states. Um, and of course, not the first place school was held, do have to clarify that, but the first building built specifically to be a schoolhouse. And there's there's a whole four desks in there. It's not a very big yeah, schoolhouse, big, but at least it's a formal yeah, schoolhouse. Yeah. And again, the idea being that mostly it was for his children. Um, and his children who went there got a phenomenal education. Again, Mr. Carter was never the kind to go halfway on anything. So the teachers he hired to, to educate his children, he brought out, he did a lot of research on, he got some of the best teachers. And those kids, upon graduating this little you know, four-desk schoolhouse, went back to the East Coast to some of the biggest 
and most premier schools and not only did well, but oftentimes outdid their compatriots there. Um, they had phenomenal education they got out here. So again, shows Mr. Carter was the kind of man who never went halfway. Well, and milk cows weren't a real common thing out here in the, in the West, from what I understood. In fact, you were kind of a sissy if you had one. Uh, but he had a milk house, which he must have had several cows. Uh, you, we, we were able to look at a freight wagon that he has. I have never seen a freight wagon that looks like this freight wagon. Most of them have wheels that are three foot, four foot tall and look like what you see in the, in the pictures of a covered wagon. This one has wheels that are over six foot tall. This thing is a behemoth. I mean, I don't know what he had as far as teams to pull that. He had to have had at least a six up, if not eight or ten. Uh, I just couldn't. The wagon is, what, probably 15 foot long and four and a half, five foot wide. I mean, it's just, it's a phenomenal piece. And, and the decking on it sits up at five foot. I don't know where he found people tall enough to load that thing. Yeah, so Mr. Carter's freight wagon is something, again, I, I very much doubt you will ever see one quite that size. Another fun thing that we know he did there, and I don't know if you looked at this, but if not, you'll have to look on the way out, but it actually has two tires set on it. So you've got your standard iron tire that goes around the outside of the wheel okay. um, that is attached, that is the regular size. Well, because the water level is so high here, a lot of times you run into very muddy ground. So he actually put another tire on there that stuck out an inch and a half on either side to give him wide tires so that they wouldn't sink in the mud so far. I did not um, notice that. So he made several modifications to this particular freight wagon to make it the behemoth that it is. Um, and it, and it, it, it certainly it, it, is. It, it, it's a behemoth. I mean, this is by far and away the biggest wagon I've ever seen. It just is mind-boggling. And then you, then you were showing us uh, uh, the very first hay baler that uh, was probably in the area, if not in, in the United States. I don't remember what exactly you said. Not but quite the United States. There were certainly others in the United States, but certainly in the area. And this was one of the very early hay bellers. Again, a very inefficient and oftentimes dangerous machine. We know there were several of uh, Carter's employees who lost arms to this thing because it misfired and pressed that clamp a little too early. Um, but of course, we do know that uh, he was a man who was also kind of known as the tech guy out here. He always wanted the latest, the greatest, the best, um, and he spared no expense to get that. Um, and that hay baler is a perfect example of that. Um, in fact, after using it for a while, some of the people kind of started complaining, hey, this thing isn't very efficient, it's, it's not worth the trouble. And he kind of told them, hey, hey, being belled is the way of the future. Everyone will be doing that. This is where the times are going. So he stuck with it. Um, and we see that he was pretty much right on that one. Um, oh yeah, everybody bales hay. I mean. But this, this hay baler is probably 20 foot long and it has these gears on the end that were attached to a spring and a trigger somehow or another. And you had to hand feed in front of the plunger all of the hay in order to get it in there to compress it. And then there were two draft horses on the end of a, of a pole that was about 15 foot long. And these draft horses would activate the big gear that would activate the, the trigger on the spring and then it would release. And so if your arms were in there packing this uh, hay 
to try and get it down in there where it needed to be, and that trigger went off. You were you were in trouble. Yeah, <laughs> this thing and is nat- gnarly looking. It was a very powerful spring, and again, it took two draft horses to just get that crank turned to compress that spring and get it ready. Um, and of course, <laughs> if you get caught when that thing goes off, uh, as I said, you lost an arm. That's just how it was. Dang, that's just it, it's such a cool piece. I've never seen anything. Uh, as far as hay baling equipment or anything that even comes close to that. And then you've got a really cool bear trap there that's uh, a wire cage that's probably 12 foot long. It looks like rebar uh, shaped in an arch. And uh, it's got the door for the bear to be able to get in. But again, yeah. that's a really neat piece that uh, I've never seen a bear trap yeah. quite like that. I've seen the ones <laughs> made out of coverts and stuff. But never a live bear trap that that looks anything like this. Thing. Yeah, because of course the base of that bear or that live bear trap is made out of wood, and it just has the iron um, up on top. So again, I can't imagine coming to a very ornery bear in that bear trap, but it could not have been fun. Well, and the and the spacing between it is is a foot between each one of those bars to where. Paws and all kinds of paws yeah. and teeth and whatever could come through you, there. You certainly want to you, give him some good distance. Oh no that. doubt. I don't know how you let him out once he's in there. Yeah, I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was a death sentence for the bear. But uh, and then we were we were just discussing. He's got another interesting piece here that I've never seen before, and that is a Fresno. Him and I were both fighting over what the name of that piece of equipment was, but it's a Fresno that has wheels on it that are wooden wheels, wooden spoke wheels, just like a wagon wheel, that stand about three foot tall. And it was a road grader. It's got a front lip on it instead of being open like most Fresnos are. And it was used to work on the uh, Lincoln Highway and, and some of the other predecessors to that as a road grader. And it's a really cool looking looking piece. I Like I said, I haven't seen one of those. And absolutely. One of the fun things about that one is that many areas that are now serving as I-80 were originally started with that particular grader there. So kind of a cool piece to have because, again, it worked on the very, very primitive um, roads that eventually became I-80. Right. And very primitive road grader. I mean, trying to get level with, with that piece <laughs> of equipment would have been really rough. Uh, it, it doesn't look like the kind of Fresno like what they you, you everybody's probably seen where they were digging ditches and, and using it as a as a drag shovel. This one here is set up more as a grader. And then from there we move on over to the Pony Express stables. Uh, you've got what seven stalls in there. It's a rock building. It's very cool building the way it's set up. And then there were gun uh, ports in the back end of it. Explain Absolutely. some of that. So again, this this is part of the Carter complex, and Mr. Carter, as I mentioned, came out with the Johnson's Army for the Utah War. Now, he never did give up the idea that the Mormons were going to come attack, and he oftentimes didn't think the fort was prepared enough for that, what he thought was to be an inevitable attack. So what he ended up doing was he actually built his buildings to form a, a little compound. Uh, think of it as a fort within a fort. Well, even the milk shed had the little trap doors for shooting out of. I noticed it on several of the buildings around here. Yeah, so he was definitely ready for the uh, what he, again, thought was the inevitable Mormon army that was going to come storm the fort. He wanted to protect his people, and he wanted to protect his belongings. So 
Um, again, also nice to see that the schoolhouse is right in the center of that. So again, it shows that he did have concerns for his children being safe. Um, but he never did give that, that idea after the Utah War that the Mormons were still going to sneak up on him sometime and really take him to town. So. And you were also saying that, that Carter ran a pretty tight ship. He, he brought all of the West or Eastern fashion and all of that kind of stuff here. Uh, the women were expected to dress in proper Victorian garb. Um, of course, the men were also expected to hold that proper Victorian standards. So this is one of the unique places this far west that we do get the full-on Victorian age happening here. And of course, due to his influence here at the fort, all of the officers kind of had to live up to those same expectations. So we have the officers and their families, kind of this really far west where um, he kind of had the thought that despite being in the west, he was going to show how a proper family should survive. Um, so that's kind of a really fun aspect. Um, and with that, we do know that Mr. Carter, again, being very refined um, and being wealthy enough to afford, was able to have a just fabulous library up and out here. He had the finest library west of the Mississippi River out wow. here, as well as he, uh, of course, wanted a piano for his home. And being that he never did anything halfway, why bring out a piano? unless you're going to bring out a baby grand piano. So really? he actually brought the first piano to Wyoming as a baby grand piano in a wagon. That because, explains why he has a freight wagon the size that it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because he wasn't going to do without, you know, a proper piano. And he did whatever he needed to do to get it here. Of course, that piano came out before the railroad system was even established. Really? So most of what we see with that freight wagon, most of its use was actually just from here to a town called Carter, which imagine that, William Carter founded. And that actually is right at a staging point of the railroad. So they would have goods shipped to that railroad station. He would pick it up in that wagon and of course bring it back here to his store. Um, of course, he was also known for entertaining several very famous guests, some of which being um, Chief Washaki, who was the chief of the, um, the Shoshone tribe, um, a man who actually was very well versed in Victorian etiquette himself. Um, oftentimes he actually knew more about which silverware to use as opposed to a lot of the white guests who were with the car really? at the time. Um, he was very much known for that, being very properly educated. He went out of his way to know the customs of his white neighbors. Wow. Um, also, of course, my favorite guest was Mark Twain stayed and spent some good time with the Carter family as well. Right here at Fort Bridger. Right here at Fort Bridger. Wow. So some, some really fun characters that have come through Fort Bridger. And then we were looking at the well on our way out, on our way through. And the well you said was just redug about a year ago. Yeah, so of course we are an archaeological our protected archaeological site. Um, even our maintenance guy is not allowed to dig anywhere without archaeological clearance and without a trained archaeology there to observe the dig. Um, so we are very wow. careful to make sure that we protect everything we can because um, there's a lot of story that archaeology has to tell us. Um, in fact, in that Carter well, we did an archaeological dig in there. And from some of the bones we found down there at the bottom of the well, animal bones, I'll clarify, um, we were able to tell that some of those bones were actually cut with a powered mechanized saw. Now, again, anywhere else in the western United States, I would say, oh, there was a mistake. Our dating method was off. But... This again was Mr. Carter. We know he had a huge meat industry. It is not out of the question to think that he would have had 
the ability to bring a powered mechanized saw out here. Um, we do know due to his influence, Fort Bridger was actually the third city in Wyoming to get electricity. Um, again, this man had huge influence, um, even to the forming of our state. Um, he, of course, after making his wealth, did what most men do during the 1800s, and he jumped over into politics. Um, he's best known as Judge Carter around here for being a territorial judge, but he was actually able to convince some of the guys in Washington, D.C. that Wyoming should be the square or the rectangle state as opposed to Utah. So looking at a modern political map, you'll notice Utah has this nice notch in it where Wyoming goes. That is Mr. Carter's fault. Well, I guess it works. Oh, we can all did. identify Utah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and then as we're as we're walking along here, there's this uh, wooden horse. It's it's a a horse that's got kind of crooked front legs because of the branches that were used for it. It's got a log that looks like you get to sit on it. There's a little neck that comes on up, looks like a two by six, and then a, a head on top of that. And then there's this sword. This doggone sword's probably seven foot long. Nine foot. It's nine foot long. Okay, nine I'm foot. off a couple feet. <laughs> it, it, I, I knew it was big. And uh, I would say it weighs probably what, eight pounds? Yeah, absolutely. So of course, eight pounds isn't too unwieldy until you lengthen it out to nine feet and then you know, if you have to point that sword anywhere, it becomes very unruly, very hard to wield. Um, and that, of course, is referring to, a, and this one is a replica here on the fort of something that was here originally that we actually have quite a few photos of um, being used, and that is the punishment horse. So, of course... The punishment horse? Yes. And it was actually used? It was used. Okay, tell us more. Tell us more. So, of course, we had... Um, our officer, who was our commanding officer of the fort here, um, Captain Mills at the time, he uh, of course is also credited with inventing and patenting the uh, cartridge belt, which he did here. Um, and of course, later on in his life, he sold vast amounts of that to the, both the English and the French armies for World War One, and eventually the U.S. military as well. So now, they didn't have cartridge belts in the Civil War, where they were using, or, or even the Indian Wars, where they had the repeating rifles they, and stuff? They did start in the Indian Wars to have those, but again, um, before that, they had cartridge boxes, which were... Okay. Basically, you'd run around, and if you've ever done any historical reenacting and worn those or been around someone who's wearing those... Every step you make, you can hear those cartridges just clink, clink, clink. Now that you mentioned it, I remember he, seeing those. He yes. thought that was super unprofessional. He hated that. Um, so he came up with a better idea, which is where we get the cartridge belt from. Okay. Now, of course, being the imaginative guy that he was, um, he found a problem here at the fort. And that is that we are currently on the infantry side of the fort. We've got a creek running right through our site that separates the infantry side of the fort from the officers and cavalry side of the fort. Well, of course, it was a punishable offense for an infantryman to cross over onto the officer's side of the fort. So you would typically get a court-martial and a one-day jail sentence for that. Now, of course, some of those infantrymen found, you know, if I've got fatigue duty tomorrow, I'm going to be out in the sun all day with an axe working on logs. Or I can cross over onto the officer's side of the creek, get caught and get sentenced to a jit, day of jail. So I'll be lounging in a jail cell for a day instead of out in the hot sun with an ax. Of course, that doesn't sound so bad to be punished that way. Well, of course, several soldiers started taking that option and it wasn't long before the officers figured out just what was going on. So 
Officer Mills decided, well, we are going to go ahead and take that idea. So he had a punishment horse built, and the idea was that if you want to be on the cavalry side of the river so bad, you obviously want to be a cavalryman. Well, we'll make you a cavalryman for the day. So sun up to sun down, you would ride the punishment horse. Of course, um, this had several different things going for it. It was an extreme punishment because it is not a comfortable place to be. Um, especially if you have to sit there for long hours. Of course, you would have to be in proper military wear, so you'd be wearing dark blue, very heavy wool, um, which is going to get hot in the sun, because, of course, why would you have shade riding on the punishment horse? Um, and, of course, there was a, just a few times that you were allowed to get off. Of course, only an officer is intelligent enough to know when a soldier who's being punished needs to use the facilities. So... The officer would dictate when they could get off and go to the bathroom, um, as well as they would let you off to take a bucket down to the creek, fill it up, and get some water to make sure your horse didn't get dehydrated because, you know, we need to take care of our horses. So the soldier would then be forced to hold this bucket of water up high enough to the, the wooden horse's snout. And, of course, only our officers are smart enough to know just how much water that horse needs to drink before he's considered hydrated. Of course, afterwards, that bucket of water would be your hydration method um, throughout the rest of the day. Now, the fun thing about this nine-foot sword we have is the top foot of it is painted red. And the idea behind that is that is if that red point ever goes below your head, you get another day on the punishment horse. So you would be required to hold that sword in a manner where that point would be above your head for that entire day. Of course, the pictures we have show a lot of depictions of guys resting on their shoulder. It's still a very uncomfortable thing, and it's still a very heavy sword, even when you're resting on your shoulder. But that's the best way to carry it. Of course, the officers had another big persuasion of power. Um, if they went, and if an officer ever even crossed in front of you, um, you would be required to show them the proper respect. You'd have to give them a cavalry salute, which, of course, includes you bringing your hand, your sword hand, to eye level, and pointing your sword up and out in a proper cavalry salute. Now, of course, if that officer decided to stand there in front of you and take a look at what you were doing, you had to hold that salute for as long as that officer stood in front of you. And if you were one of those soldiers who'd particularly upset one of the officers, he could stand there just long enough to make sure that red point on that sword came just below your head level. So if you ticked off the officers, you were going to get multiple days on the punishment horse. Um, of course, this was a tactic that worked extremely well, um, because also there were, you know, we were a busy fort. There was a lot of people here, and in fact, the immigrant trail was also in view of this punishment horse, so anyone coming down the immigrant trail would see you looking like a yahoo out there on a wooden <laughs> horse, wondering what the heck is this weirdo doing? Um, as well as all, of course, those people, the soldiers, the camp followers, everyone involved with the military fort would also see you. Um, a very embarrassing place to be. So, of course, this punishment worked extremely well. Um, that kind of behavior from the infantrymen disappeared almost overnight, um, is what we see from the records. With my luck... It would have been on June 21st, the longest day of the year. Oh. <laughs> that sounds about right. That's when I would have got busted. I'm sure there were several who faced that. Okay, so then we move on down, and, and now we're coming into the new jail building. Yep, the new guardhouse, which of course infers that there must have been an old guardhouse, which is certainly the case. So 
the original guardhouse that was built here was built right next to the commissary. Um, we also know that these guardhouses um, and some of these original buildings were built extremely quickly and not so much worried about the quality of the buildings. In fact, um, the original commissary and the original guardhouse were built directly into the Mormon wall that was left from when they burned the fort. So what was left of that cobblestone wall actually became part of the military buildings. Um, so what it really turned out to be is the old guardhouse turned out to be very easy to escape from. And that made it nice and convenient because as soon as you get out of the old guardhouse, you are right next to the commissary where all the supplies are kept. So then you just simply break into the easy to break into commissary, grab the goods you need, and you can desert with a, a lot of a lot of good head start there. It's um, good that they made it convenient like yeah. that. Well, and it also didn't help that there was such a large Mormon population around because a lot of the guys deserting would actually go to the Mormon families, and the Mormon families we do know were very happy to harbor deserters from the military. Um, so it made it a very, very good place to desert from the military. Why were they happy to, to board the deserters? Oh, well, first and foremost, they still didn't like the U.S. government very okay. well. So especially having um, what they considered the fort stolen from them, which in a lot of ways is correct. The military, um, you know, with, with the Jim Bridger to Mormon um, switch of the fort, there's a lot of questions there. With the Mormon to military, there is no question. This fort was taken by conquest um, and kept by the military. So the Mormons still had some, some grudges to harbor against the military, and that was one of the ways the local Mormons could very easily take that out on the military. Okay, that makes sense. So, of course, the new guardhouse that we're in, um, they didn't spare any expense on this one. They were going to make sure this was a proper guardhouse. So we actually have the cell in the middle of the building. We've got a catwalk that the guards would actually walk around. So even if you got out of your particular jail cell, you weren't out of the jail yet, um, and you were most likely going to get caught. We do know from the records that there were no one who escaped from this particular jail um, because it was very well built. In fact, it was so well built that the locals oftentimes used the same jail cell as, long as, as well as the military. So of course, we've got some good sounds here, as you should have in any jail. Um, I'm going to open the door here, and you'll get to hear the wonderful creak of a jail cell opening up. Oh, yeah. Just what you want to hear from a jail cell. Um, now, this is not a small cell. This no. thing is 12 by 16. It's a, it, how, many, how many guys would they put in here? That depends. How many did you need to put in here? This was the general confinement cell. So, of course, as many guys as you had in trouble, you'd just kind of keep piling them in here. There weren't real standards. Um, right. And there was one health officer. So if the health officer decided there were too many people in here, they would comply with that. But if the health officer didn't say anything, there really was no limitation. And, and the course, ceiling in here is up 12 foot tall. Oh, absolutely. With bars across with, the top. With so. bars across the top. And and the wall is the wall's ten foot tall anyway. Yeah, so of course wow. very difficult place to get out of. Now uh, you can see over here in the corner we kind of have your standard fare for if you were in here. You would be issued one wool blanket. Um, now again the health officer could issue more if he felt the need to do so, but that was the only other way to get warm. Right. Um, and of course one bucket for your facilities. I was going to say, that's probably not a drinking bucket. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> and of course, the more men you had in here, 
you certainly didn't get any more buckets, so it just filled up quicker the more guys wow. you had in here. And of course, the guards are never going to take that out. Right. So if that was going to be emptied, it was going to be emptied by one of the prisoners, usually taken out at bayonet point. Um, so no fooling around or you're going to end up in trouble. And now this has a, I'm assuming it's a pine floor that uh, has the normal pine floor dishing in it. This floor would not have been comfortable to sit on, kneel on, lay on, anything. or anything else. Yeah. It is rough. It is dished. Lots of ridges. I think you'd be better off finding a place in a in a gravel driveway than yeah, what you I, would I laying down right. on this. Yeah. Not a good place wow. to be. And of course, this is the general confinement cell. We actually do have some solitary confinement cells, which are even better. Are they? Absolutely. So of course, some other things I'll point out as we're going towards those. Um, we have the guard room. Now, guard duty was the very least favorite um, opportunity that soldiers had here on the fort. Um, There's nothing they complained more about than pulling guard, is what they called it. Of course, that meant you had to be awake for 24 hours straight. You spend two hours standing on sentry duty, and then you get two hours off, and then, of course, two hours back on sentry duty, and that was how your 24 hours went. Um, of course, at a fort, this particular fort, it was not an exciting sentry duty by any stretch of the imagination, um, especially standing out there after the sun went down. It's just dark and can't see anything anyway, but you're standing guard. Um, of course, over here we have the fire brigade, because of course the guards were also in charge of putting out any fires that went out during that time. So you've got some water buckets for water. For the brigade, for passing. Line. And then of course we also have, um, introduced later in the, in the history of the fort here, a very early fire extinguisher. Which is which is about two foot tall, has a pump on it with a hose that's about 18 inches long. So I'm sure you were trying, well, a lot like your weed sprayer, I that guess. That is exactly Trying to like put out a fire to. with a weed sprayer. Yeah, you, you get some pressure built up in there, and then you spray. Um, then you got some leg shackles. Yeah, and of course, these actually were not military used. These we know were the civilian used ones. So okay. of course, those who were here not with the military fort, who were kind of in the local area, they would use this guardhouse as well. Um, and of course, when they caught their prisoners, that's when these leg shackles came into play. They would prison or get them shackled up so that they couldn't run, and then they would start the move, throw them in the wagon, or more often, tie them behind the horse and watch them hobble. Um, now these leg shackles are nasty looking. There's a, there's a chain that's about probably eight to 10 inches but the shackles themselves are made out of uh, round stock that's probably half-inch round round stock with a big rivet in it. And it looks like they probably put a paddle lock through the two holes that come together around the backside of your leg. Yeah. So I've never seen a set as beefy as what that yeah, is. Yeah, they were certainly not pleasant to be in. Wow. Of course, some of the other important features we have here in the guardhouse are this is one of the few places where there would be an actual working clock. Um, most of the time, you didn't have to worry too much about time other than sunset, sundown. Of course, you'd have the bugler who would kind of tell you what time it was and where you needed to be. But of course, on guard duty, you needed to know the time, so you'd have the clock here, one of the very few clocks on the site. And of course, these beds that were allowed for the guards to rest during their two hours off, of course, they weren't supposed to sleep, but they were allowed a little bit of a respite. Um, so they had these beds in here that were at a slant because the belief was that the slant would stop you from falling asleep as easily. 
they didn't know me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the funny thing is, um, also, the way this bed frame is built, these mattresses on it are actually pretty slick. They I, I was wondering how long anybody would be able to sleep on there because so, you, this is the angle that he's talking is probably a 22 and a half degree angle, I'm guessing. So you're sleeping almost halfway between standing up and laying down. And it's got a wool blanket on top of the mattress. The mattress is just a thin mattress. Uh, were they cotton or or were they Stuff straw? Whatever you have. Yeah. Straw. In fact, one of the most popular things around this particular area was taking the, the cattail bulbs. Oh, really? A lot softer and stuffing your mattress there. So, But it was whatever you could find. Um, again, that was something that had to be replaced because, again, otherwise you get the whole bed, bed bug issue. But um, you did have a, a heater in here. Yeah, you did have a wood burning stove in here. Um, it's one of the pot belly styles that, again, aren't super efficient, but they do put out heat. Now, was there coal in this area? Did they have coal also, or was everything wood? It was mostly wood here. Okay. I know a lot of places had, had coal that they would shove in, and it Eventually, would burn all night long instead of having to get up and stoke it every well, hour. The good news about being on guard duty is you're supposed to be awake for the 24 I guess. hours anyway, so you don't have to worry about it going out while you're sleeping, because if you're sleeping, you're in trouble. Right. And then they've also got a table here with some cards, and and uh, looks like an old pack of cigarettes, maybe. Tobacco. Just chewing Chew. tobacco? Yeah. Okay. And some cups and, and some of that kind of stuff. So I guess they were probably allowed to play cards while they were yep, staying away. While they were rest. So, of course, you're two hours standing. You weren't allowed to do anything. You're two hours rest bed. You weren't allowed to do something as long as you stayed away. So you're coming around the corner now to our solitary, solitary confinement. Now, of course, this, this is a funny. beastly place to be. Now, typically, you would get your common wool blanket as well as your... Uh, your standard bucket right um, for your relief duties but really this is kind of a fun one especially for when school children come out here on field trips there's nothing school kids love more than being locked up in a cell right don't right why but they love that oh so now i'm getting yeah we'll, we'll get you locked up just to get a good idea of just how dark these cells were it is dark there's a little trap door on the window that's not open, and I think I've just been locked into solitary confinement. The thing that's interesting about this is this room is probably uh, five foot wide, six and a half foot long, but the tallness of it, it's, it's 12 foot tall. There's more room. If you, if you were able to lay on the walls or stand on the walls, you'd have more room than what you do standing on the floor. And again, it's got the same pine floor that we described earlier that would make sleeping so comfortable and nice. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Spared no expense. Yes. Yeah, this is this is a neat building. And this here is one of the, it's still in original shape from when it was originally built. Yep. In fact, of all the doors that I have here on site, I've got around 126 exterior doors with all the buildings I care for. And this one, the front door, is the one last original door we have. Really? So. Okay, well, let's, let's, uh, it's starting to rain pretty good out there right now, it looks like. Uh, and the wind's blowing extremely hard. Let's talk about some of your other buildings uh, just from this point. We'll go out and look at them later, and you can give us some of the high points and uh, kind of finish up with, with what we need to know about the fort. And then we'll terminate this. Sounds good. Well, kind of continuing on, um, 
did mention very briefly the commissary, of course, where you'd pick up your, your standard issue supplies. Um, one of the cool things we have, though, is we have actually taken the time to replicate the Jim Bridger trading post, because that's something that, you know, that was kind of where it got its name. Right. Uh, the town still carries the name because of that trading post. So we did replicate that, and a lot of times it's hard to get an old fort um, like that replicated properly. But in our particular case, we had a lot of resources to help us out with that. We had both the, both the basically the immigrants would have in their journals, a lot of them describe the fort in pretty minute detail. So we have those to pull from. We also have um, two immigrants who actually made sketches of the fort that we were able to pull from. Okay. And then, of course, the actual archaeology that we had here of the fort. So we do know that our replica fort is pretty close. I mean, it's probably going to have a few things that aren't as they were. Right. But we do know that this is fairly close to what that original fort would have looked like. Okay. Cool that we were able to build such an accurate replica. That is cool. I'm curious about where the Mormon wall is. So we actually have one piece of the Mormon wall still standing, um, which is a really fun thing to have. And of course, I'll, I'll take you over and show you that as soon as the rain lets up a little. Um, but that is a, a cool piece. And again, it and how, how how long of a piece of that do you have? Um, so it's certainly no more than 20 feet long. Okay. There's very little left of it. Um, and again, that's that's kind of to be expected because the wall was built in great haste. Um, it was basically meant to give them somewhere to hide more than it was anything. And well, again, I'm sure as you're hazing a place as you're leaving, that's part of what you're taking too. Oh, absolutely. So, um, one of the other things that's actually one of my favorite places on the floor to show people is actually an archaeological dig site where we have uncovered the original... Um, charred remains of the Jim Bridger Palisade wall, um, as well as several other treasures that I'll probably save that for a little later on because you'll want the, the bigger story there where you can actually see what's going on. Okay. Um, we also have, of course, um, some standard officers' quarters um, that would have held, you know, one building that would have been split in half, but you'd have two officers living, one taking one half, the other in the other half as well as, of course, the commanding officer's quarters, which is a big Victorian mansion, um, as well as what we have dubbed the ranch house that used to be an officer's quarters that was a duplex, so kind of like the, the other officer's quarters that was split into two, except this one was built for families to live in. Um, so you had to be a bit higher ranking to get into that one. But the history of that one is, is that the uh, when the military left in 1890 after Wyoming became a state, um, they auctioned off as many of the buildings as they could. Well, there were actually two families who bought that particular duplex. And of course, what do you do if you have two families for one duplex? You simply cut it in half. Um, and that's what they did. They cut it in half, they jacked it off the foundation, put it on rollers. One family rolled their half one way, the other family rolled their half off the other. Um, <laughs> wow. So, of course, we were actually eventually able to um, regain possession of one of those homes, or one half of the duplex. The other one, unfortunately, caught on fire and burned. But we were able to bring that back, um, put it as close to where we could figure it belonged. Um, and of course, we have that one set up as it would have been used after the military occupation. 
the preservation aspect of this place is just as fascinating as the, as a museum. I mean, oh, the absolutely. things that you guys have done here and the, and the way that, that it's been kept and, and the Carter family uh, helping out with all of that is, is a phenomenal story all by itself. It absolutely is. And, and as I said, it gives us a really unique perspective on um, what we can do with our museum. In fact, one of my favorite pieces in our collection is actually the... Uh, Pretty much in every museum, depicting any kind of grounds, you've got a nice model that shows what it would have looked like. We have one, but ours is a, a little unique in the fact that it was built by Edgar Carter, who oh, was really? William Carter's youngest son, and he built it based on his childhood memories of growing up in the fort. Um, so I've seen a lot of really cool models out there, but this is the only one I've ever run into that has that close a connection to what it's supposed to be depicting. Wow, that's amazing. So, yeah, absolutely amazing. A lot of absolutely phenomenal aspects that have come from being made a historic site so early on and having all those resources that, thank goodness, my predecessors here very much pulled from those and used those to their great advantage. And it's really benefited us um, to help us preserve those stories and to really get that personal connection. Cool. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this up. And... Uh... I just want to, do you guys have a website, Facebook page, or is it all tied in through the Wyoming State Parks? So we do have a website that is tied in through the Wyoming State Parks, and we do, of course, have a Facebook page. Um, so feel free to check on, on the Facebook page, especially. We try and keep all of our events that we do throughout the year well advertised. We've got some fun events. We've already mentioned the rendezvous that happens um, over every Labor Day, which is by far our biggest event. We also have some military reenactments where we bring um, 1860s military soldiers out here during the summer. They absolutely love to come out here because they get to come reenact in actual military buildings. They get um, to fire cannons and all they that? They fire cannons. We do gun oh, drills. Wow. So you get to watch them do skirmish drills, um, cavalry drills. Um, so it's a lot of fun for those ones as well. Um, we also, of course, have what I mentioned earlier with the Treaty Day okay. um, on July 3rd, where we have Native Americans come out to uh, honor that day when their people sign those treaties. Um, so both from the Shoshone Bannock and the Eastern Shoshone Nations. Um, we also have some fun events we do throughout the rest of the year. We do host a Victorian Christmas event that we hold in December. So if you're okay. brave enough to come out during the Wyoming snow, you're welcome to come check that out. And one of the, the ones that's really growing in popularity. Um, we are a historic site, but due to the fact that all of our buildings are original, we tend to get a lot of ghost stories here. Oh, do you? Um, in fact, if you look up on most websites, we're usually in the top 10 haunted places in Wyoming, um, okay. if not the top five in most that I've seen. Um, and that's something that we don't necessarily want to say that we're a haunted site all the time, but it's something that is part of our history and we do have to acknowledge. So, of course, we picked a short time in October where we kind of acknowledge that and you can actually sign up um, to come out with a group and we will take you on what we like to call our ghost tours where we will light a little one candle lantern and we will take you in small groups through these buildings um, and tell you some of the stories that have been told there. Um, I've always been intrigued with the ghost uh, tours. I have never taken one and I don't know why. We did the uh a podcast at the Territorial Museum in Deer Lodge, Montana. I haven't been able to get into the one in Wyoming. Every time I've been there, it's been closed. But uh, 
we did go through the territorial one in Montana, and th that sounds like a phenomenal ghost tour. And I keep saying, we need to go, we need to go. But as of yet, I just haven't made it. But uh, yeah. this would be a good one to come down yeah. and see. And especially if you're not, not super into the ghost thing, you're just kind of mildly interested. Um, we have a good advantage in the fact that we weren't. Um, Kind of as scary as a prison right um, right most, most ghost stories in prisons turn out being pretty dark we've got a lot of ghost stories but we don't really have anything that i would ever call evil um so we do have ghosts that have interacted people who've seen um, in fact a lot of even the rendezvous as they're camping here overnight we've had some of them get very mad at us because they've had um you know they come out and say oh why'd you have some obviously late 1800s soldiers marching through camp last night that's not accurate to the period we're trying to depict and we kind of have to tell them uh we didn't have anybody out there um you guys course, are the ones that are out of period because the fort wasn't even here when you guys were were running around but yeah so, anyway. um there have been several soldiers who've been seen here as well as uh, several other individuals across the fort so we do take some time in October <laughs> to acknowledge that. Now, is this mostly on the weekends, or uh, so, when do you run those? We typically run those, um, it depends on the year, typically on a weekday, actually. We find uh, we kind of have to limit how many people can get to those ones. So, okay. again, um, we'll usually post those, and those fill up almost immediately, so you'll have to be quick on those ones. And um, what is your Facebook site? Um, so it is Fort Bridger State Historic Site, um, if you look that up. You'll okay. find our, our group on Facebook. And, and then what about web page? Um, web page, if you go to the Wyoming State Parks okay. web page, you will have a Fort Bridger link. Or a lot of times if you type it in Google, it'll take you straight to the Fort Bridger page of okay. the, the State Parks website. So. Okay. Well, Josh, I sure appreciate all of the information you've shared. I have learned so much from this uh, interview podcast that we've done here. Uh, this has been great. Uh, I like to finish out my podcasts by saying the world is full of wonder. People need to get out and explore. There's this stuff everywhere. And take the time to take the 10-minute drive off of Interstate 80 when you're between Evanston and Rock Springs. Come down and visit Fort Bridger. See what's here. And everybody have an absolutely wonder-filled day. All the rolling go. Where am I to go, meet Johnny? Where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go?